Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me for another episode of the Typical Skeptic Podcast. Uh, I have with me a, a fascinating guest. This man is, has been a legend of the Art Bell Show and Coast to Coast AM for a long time. Every every week, he gives a UFO report to George Norrie or whoever the, the host is of Coast to Coast. But like I said, I started off listening to him back when he was on Art Bell. So that's pretty amazing. Um, and who I have with me is retired Army Lieutenant Colonel he served in Vietnam, uh, Kevin Randall. He was a helicopter pilot and an aircraft commander. And in the Iraq war, he was a battalion intelligence officer. He began his career contributing to UFO magazines in more than 40 years. He's published in 100 books, including science fiction, action, adventure, and almost 30 books about UFOs. He's appeared on dozens of TV shows and documentaries and hundreds of radio shows. He hosts a blog, A Different Perspective, Vietnam Ground Zero and the Science Fiction Site. He can be heard on X-Zone Broadcast Network and does a weekly segment on Coast to Coast AM. His most recent books are UFOs in the Deep State, which will be interesting. I obviously have a question him on that. Encounter in the Desert, the Socorro UFO Landing, and the Best of Project Blue book in Roswell in the 21st century. But today, what we're going to be talking about is really interesting. We're going to be talking about these events that happened in Levelland, Texas. Basically, back in 1957, there were these sightings that were reported that shut down cars. They, they took radio stations off the air, I believe. Like it was, it, it was a, a big thing that, and, and we're going to talk about these sightings and how the government um, covered them up, basically. Um, how this was part of the big UFO cover up that, you know, has been going on forever. And it's, it's still going on to this day. And I'm sure Kevin has an opinion on that. And, and we're going to talk about all this. And I want to welcome him to the show first, Kevin. Thank you for coming on the show and thank you for your service to our country. How are you? I'm doing fine. And thank you for having me on the program. Um, now, uh, before we get into this, can, can you give, um, I, di I didn't want to read the, the real long synopsis that Philip Mantle gave, the, you know, in the, about the book. Can you tell my audience about these level land sightings and how they fit into UFO history? <laughs> It's, it's a very complex question you asked there, and it'd probably be easier for you to read Philip Singh, but I'll take a shot at it. Well, I can if you want me to. No, uh, no, no, no. I'll take, I'll, I had to do this a number of times. Uh, the, the first of the sightings began on November 2nd, 1957, uh, in a place called Canadian, Texas, which is in the Texas panhandle, and it's north of Le the Leveland area. And uh, we had a landed craft. We had an occupant, a creature from inside, outside. It was seen by... Uh, two separate witnesses um, as they were going forward. So uh, that's the first sighting that begins this. And then we, we move into the evening. We run into a couple, a young couple who are driving toward Amarillo, which is also in the panhandle of Texas, north of Clay, Canadian and north of Leveland. Um, their car is stalled. The object, when it leaves, um, they try to start the car and find out the battery is dead. They can't move the car. They eventually get a ride into Amarillo. They report it to the police. And here's the thing that just really flabbergasts me. Nobody in the police department thought to write down their names. I have a description of what they look like. <laughs> That's funny. But, but we, don't, we don't have their names. Then things begin in Leveland, Texas. And around 1030 at night, a fellow named Pedro Sacido, a veteran of the Korean War, I might add, is described as a part-time barber, a, a farmhand, driving his pickup toward Leveland in this bright blue glowing egg shape. I think he described it as torpedo-shaped, 
object comes down and lands near the pickup truck, stalling the engine, putting the headlights out, filling the radio with static. He dives out of the truck and rolls underneath it for protection. His passenger sits there paralyzed, paralyzed by the experience. Uh, after a few minutes, the object turns a bright red or orange red and takes off. And once it's gone, Saucedo can then start the uh, truck. He can get it going again. Rather than continue to level land, he goes to another small town in the area and calls the sheriff in, in level land. The police dispatcher who took the call, of course, thought he was drunk or crazy or something and didn't believe him. So uh, after that, there's a series of sightings all around the level land area. Uh, people are calling in, their cars are being stalled. Um, they're seeing the object, this sort of thing. There's a number of sightings. There's a report on witnesses independently reporting it from 13 separate locations. But according to the information, there were many more who called the sheriff's department. Long about 1.30, the sheriff decides he needs to go out and take a look at this. It's because something's going on. They've now convinced him there's something going on because of all the phone calls coming in. He leads a small, what I call a mini convoy toward the, uh, into the area. It's him and a deputy in his car. Behind him is a state police car. I think it's the department, Texas Department of Public Safety. And then there's a third car with Air Force officers in it. And they head out looking for this thing. Now, the Air Force report tells us that he saw a streak of light, red light in the distance. Prior to the Air Force investigation, uh, he was the sheriff, and his name is Ware Clem, and I just wished he had a better name than that, you know, like Jack Armstrong or Tom Terrific or something, but his name is Weir Clem, and he's reported, he's reported saying that he saw a, an oval-shaped or a football-shaped object. And a fellow named Don Burlinson did an investigation in 2000, and he talked to the uh, widow of the sheriff, and she told him that uh, he got much closer than that, which, of course, is verified by the newspapers. Uh, Burlington also talked to the mechanic for the sheriff's department at the time in 1957. And the sheriff had brought his car in the next day, which would have been November 3rd, to have it checked out. Only reason I can think of for the sheriff to have his car checked out the next day is his car was stalled. He got close enough that his car was stalled. And if that's true, then the Air Force was present when the UFO stalled cars. And we have we have a car with Air Force officers in it following the sheriff and if the air if the sheriff's car was stalled so was the, the air force officer's car do you think the air force intelligence would have disguised himself back then or were they not been i i don't think i don't think they knew it. when when they were out with the sheriff i think it was probably an operations officer maybe an intelligence officer maybe the provost marshal from reese air force base now reese air force base is in lubbock texas and lubbock is 15 minutes to the east of level land so i mean it's a it, an area where they could have gotten to the sheriff very quickly, especially with all the reports coming in, and they would have been contacting the, the, the Air Force as well. So I think that we, we had a number of Air Force officers, and the intelligence officer may have been there, the operations officer may have been there, may have been somebody higher up the uh, chain of command as well there. Uh, but the point simply is, um, the sheriff talked about seeing the um, oval-shaped object, the football-shaped object, when the Air Force comes in to investigate, they send in a NCO, a staff sergeant, which is a fairly mid-level NCO, uh, to investigate named Norman Barth. And he takes statements from six people. So the Air Force says, well, only three people saw the object, and we have statements from six people. Well, I found 13 people in separate locations that saw the object and had their cars stolen. 
But in the sheriff's report then, he just says he saw a streak of a light, a light about 900 yards away. Well, later on, a fellow named Don uh, Berlin, or yes, there's a lot of Dons in this conversation, uh, interviewed the sheriff in the mid-1970s. And the sheriff was back to, yes, I saw the object much closer. Now, we move into 2000 when Don Berlinson is interviewing the sheriff's uh, widow. He learns that the sheriff went out and checked a burned area north of north. Uh, west of town, slightly northwest of town, I believe. And um, the rancher there had passed away, but the wife said, yes, they found this big burned area on the ground. And Burlington talked to the daughter and she said, yes, my father and I went out there and we looked at it. She saw the burned area. So we have a witness, a firsthand witness to the burned area. But according to the Air Force, there were no burned areas around there. There were no landing traces. Now think what we've got here. We've got an air, we've got multiple sightings by independent witnesses uh, in the space of two and a half to three hours around the level land, Texas, and then the other little towns around level land, like Pettit, Texas, for example, I think Kermit, Texas is mentioned. They're all right around the level land Lubbock area. They're all in that panhandle area of Texas. We've got them, the, the UFO interacting with the environment. It comes close, your car stalls, your radio fill, fears with, fills with static uh, your headlights dim and go out. And some cars reported other um, activities. Uh, the amp meter on one car uh, was going from discharge to charge back and forth before the engine stalled out, that sort of thing. So we have multiple witnesses to this thing. Then we have a burned area, according to firsthand account of, of, of the, the girl who was there and saw it. Uh, uh, and the information came from the sheriff's department uh, of a burned area. Well, we Think of the investigation that could have been conducted. Instead, Barr spent seven hours in Leveland, and I'm not sure what he did for the seven hours because he didn't talk to many of the witnesses. He only talked to uh, a few of them. And the Air Force wrote it off as ball lightning, which is a phenomenon that science still argues about. It's, isn't that almost like uh, Hynek saying swamp gas? Like it's just like BS, right? No, no. He, with Hynek, it's a little bit different. Hynek is called in to investigate the Michigan sightings. And he gets off the airplane and he's met by reporters. And all he's got is a preliminary investigation, just preliminary information. And, and the object is seen in a swamp and, and the way it glows and the way it looks. When they ask him what it is, he says, well, it sounds like swamp gas. But he hadn't conducted an investigation. He was talking off the cuff, which he probably shouldn't have done. But um, that's not the same as Barth coming in and investigating these sightings and saying, well, it's ball lightning. Okay. Ball lightning Ball lightning is a very short life phenomenon, if it in fact exists, as they say, and it's very small from 18 inches to two feet in diameter. It lasts a matter of seconds. There's one report where the guy watched it for 15 minutes. So clearly it's not ball lightning, but that's the official explanation as we have in the Project Blue Book files today. If you go and look it up in the master index of the Project Blue Book files, you go down to level land and it says the official explanation is ball lightning. And in fact, the project card which uh, is a device they use to kind of uh, file the things in a very short form. And you could look up the files with all the other information, but the project cards would have been filed elsewhere. On that, it just listed as ball lightning as well. And so they've written the whole sightings off. Now, yes. 
now, now, the Blue Book cases, they said that Hynek was a skeptic at first, but then after he left Blue Book, he became a believer. Um, but now, now they made a show about, which I haven't watched. I haven't watched the, the Blue Book show. But are all the Blue Book cases really skeptical? Or, or was that right? Was he a skeptic at first and then he became a believer? Is that how it went? He was hired, uh, Blue Book was housed at the Air Technical Intelligence Center in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, Heineck was teaching astronomy and was an astronomer at uh, the Ohio State University. I always love it. The official name of the organization is the Ohio State University. I love that. Um, and he came in as skeptical, as you would expect a scientist to do. During his tenure there, as he saw more and more of these cases, he became less and less skeptical. There was a point in the early 1950s, 1951, 1952, when Ed Ruppelt was in charge of Project Blue Book, where they did the investigations looking for solutions, looking for evidence, looking, gathering the um, information carefully. After January of 1953, there was a CIA-sponsored investigation into UFOs called the Robertson Panel. And their conclusion was, there's nothing to this. We should stop doing it. We're, We're... creating this mystery. We've got to debunk the UFO sightings. And teachers should not be allowed to accept reports from students about UFOs. Uh, they shouldn't let them read books about UFOs and this sort of um, social engineering, you might say, back in the 1950s. And after, after uh, um, Rupert left Blue Book, then the um, project officers, the officers in charge of Blue Book became basically radically skeptical, with the exception of uh, Colonel Robert Friend. I think he was uh, less skeptical than some of them. Hector Quintanella, who was the man that closed out Blue Book, officially closed out Blue Book. The guy who really closed out was a guy named uh, um, Carmen Morello. But uh, he was very skeptical as well. Uh, Quintanella was very skeptical of the UFOs. He didn't know what they were. So yes, the the whole project morphed into... um, not an investigation, but a search for explanations to hand off to the public. And they didn't care how accurate those explanations might be, as least as they as long as they sounded good. And I, I cannot believe they got hung up on the Paul Lightning thing, because in 1957, uh, scientists were arguing about the reality of it. And there's still a skeptical side to that the ball lightning doesn't exist. And yet they're using this ball lightning to explain the, the flying saucer sightings. Well, it seems like this this was the, the 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 theme for the Air Force, you know, back in in and it started. I think you say it's in your book, or you said on another interview I listened to. You said by 1957, Cog used this phrase that the fix was in. It, the, the, it was it was meant for people to start being looked at as ridiculous if they believed in UFOs. People who were witnesses were looked down as stupid or unscholarly. Um, it was just that, that was just the the way that the, the cards were dealt for UFO believers and UFO witnesses. That it was already deemed that they were going to be looked at as idiots and looked down upon, and uh, and that was kind of the way it was, right? I think the um, curtain of ridicule actually began to be drawn in 1947. Oh. If you go back and you read the newspapers, there's one one newspaper headline that says a flying saucer seen in 38 states except Kansas. Well, at the time, Kansas was a dry state. You couldn't drink there. So they're implying they're all a bunch of drunks. And yeah, there was an attitude that developed after about 1952, uh, 1953, especially after the Robertson panel, where, yeah, the the theory was the people who see flying saucers are poorly educated. Um, They're rural. Uh, The 
we're probably wearing bib overalls and have three teeth, uh, just look, look down upon as being real rubes. And when you look at the case data, what you find is the higher the educational level, um, the longer the object is in sight, the more mysterious the case becomes. And that's where we have in Level Land. You could eliminate the Level Land case. You say, well, Pedro Sacido, he was um, uh, sometimes barber. He was a uh, farmhand. He you know, did part-time work that way. Uh, when his car was taken in the next day to be examined, his pickup truck, they found a small piece of metal in the rotor, which they said, well, that shorted out the engine. My question immediately becomes, well, how come it shorted out the engine with the approach of close close approach of the UFO and why when it left did the engine begin to work properly again so this piece of metal they found in the in the rotor above the distributor probably had nothing to do with the car the pickup truck shutting down but then you have additional people now Heineck I think in one of the documents wrote that once you move beyond uh, you know Saucedo's problem you've got another guy calling in with a similar problem and then you've got a third guy. At that point, you know, coincidence becomes a little bit hard to take. And Heineck's working off the Air Force file. He doesn't have access to all the information that I have. And I don't think he had access to all the information that the Blue Book had. But he, looking at that, he says, well, there's only three people who saw the object. Well, it turns out if you read the Air Force file carefully in today's environment, you can find the name, five people who saw an object. They also talk about people seeing something in the distance, you know, the streak of light like the sheriff. The sheriff is disqualified because he only saw a streak of light in the distance, according to the Blue Book file. So Heineck's operating off the documentation that he's seen and those six reports that were filed by Barth, of which only three people were credited with seeing the object. I got a question. Um, what wasn't one of those people, Jim Stokes, and I read that he gets a burn on his arm, similar to like how Dreyfus gets the burn on his arm in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Stokes comes later. Stokes shows up on November 6th near Oro Grande, New Mexico, which is south of uh, Alamogordo. But what we're doing here, we, we level land is four and a half hours from, uh, from, from Holloman Air Force Base in Alamogordo. It's and it takes place a couple of days later. So yes, Stokes does see an object. He is heading from Alamogordo to El Paso near a little town called Oro Grande. He, his radio begins to fade out and he goes to tune, turn it up and the car engine dies and he pulls over to the side of the road and there's six or seven cars pulled over on the road at the same time. And they're all watching this egg-shaped object as it kind of flies around overhead for a few minutes and then takes off. And once it's gone, they all can start their cars Stokes eventually returns to Alamogordo that evening. El Paso is what, an hour and a half, two hours from, from Alamogordo, I, I believe. Yeah. And so uh, he gets back to Alamogordo. He calls his boss, an Air Force major, and asks if he can talk about the UFO sighting he had. And the boss's question was, were you on Air Force duty at the time? And he said, no. And the major says, go ahead, tell anybody you want. Jim and Carl Lorenzen, who led the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, happened to live in Alamogordo at the time. So Stokes called Jim Lorenzen because he knew him. Lorenzen calls the um, radio station and they take uh, Stokes over there. So the, the Lorenzens and the radio station guy, whose name is Clark, I believe, um, all saw this light sunburn. Not, not as dramatic as Richard Dreyfuss's sunburn in Close Encounters, but I think that may have been where they got the idea because only half his face was sunburned and one arm was sunburned, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, by the next morning, the, the burn is pretty well gone. You, you can't really see it. So um, 
that's not directly related to the level um, and sightings, other than the fact that it took place within two or three days of the level and sightings, and it's not all that, it's still in the desert southwest. And, and something else that was this was close to the level and sightings that you wrote about, I think, was the, the incidents at White Sands Missile Base that happened a couple of days later, right? That was pretty interesting. It happened within hours. The first sighting was in, the, the sightings end in level land around 2.30 in the morning, and then they pick up around 3.30, 4 o'clock at um, White Sands Missile Range. White Sands Missile Range is co-located in the area of Holloman Air Force Base in Alamogordo, so it's but four and a half hours from, from uh, Roswell by car, I'm not sorry, Roswell, uh, level end by car. And there's two MPs on duty there and they see an object in the sky and it comes down and it's silhouetted against the mountains. It's no more than 50 yards away from them, according to Glenn Toy. And he was one of the MPs. And I talked to him a number of years ago about this. And he was talking about how the, the, the object came down and it, you could, it was silhouetted against the horizon. I mean, it was below the horizon. So it was very close to him. The Air Force wrote it off as the moon, of course, and said that the um, two MPs were very young men, um, poorly educated. Um, their uniforms were immaculate, but they were poorly trained, and they were caught up in the hysteria of the level land sightings. Well, the problem is we're dealing with 1957, where we don't have social media. You couldn't go on TikTok. You couldn't go on Instagram. You couldn't go on Facebook. You couldn't send instant messages out saying, I just saw the most incredible thing. You had to wait for the news media to catch up, and the news media didn't catch up till the next morning. So they're out there, have no idea what's going on, and they report this, this object that comes down, the two of them, uh, Will Banks and Toy. The next evening, some 12 hours later, another two MPs have a similar experience, and the Air Force wrote that off as um, the planet Venus, which is equally preposterous. But you could at least say the guys later could have been caught up with the hysteria talking to their fellow MPs and that sort of thing. The thing that annoyed me about this, according to the documentation, I, I think Coy was 21 years old at the time, and uh, Will Banks may have been 20. They were 20, 21 years old. And they're talking about how they were young and unimpressionable, and you really can't trust them. And I'm thinking, good Lord, I was 19 years old as a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. You know, I'm flying, I'm an aircraft commander. I'm only 19. These guys are two years older, probably much more mature than I was at 19. Uh, and, and the Air Force is running them down. With Stokes, they did the same sort of thing. Stokes uh, was described as an engineer in the news, the news reports. And the Air Force came out with a stating, well, he wasn't really trained as an, as an engineer. He didn't have a college background as an engineer. And it's just kind of embellishing his uh, resume because he was just a technician. And what was really funny about this is that the Air Force officers who worked with him at Holloman Air Force Base said, no, no, he's an engineer. He's got an engineering position. He's doing engineering work. He'd spent 20 years in the Navy. He is working now at with us as an engineer. And, and these other things are irrelevant. So you have the Air Force attempting to smear the guy and the Air Force attempting to say, no, this is not fair to describe him that way. So you see the dichotomy of the Air Force position on this and the attempts to smear the people and change the, the dynamic. What the Air Force did with the level land sightings is they, there's a document in the files that actually tells us this. They were going to wait for NICAP, which was the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, to issue their report because it's easier to respond to the report than it is to issue your own statement first. So they waited for Don Kehoe saying, we got another Don in this already. Um, 
to issue the report through NICAP. Kehoe was the director of NICAP, and he was talking about nine people seeing the object. Well, the Air Force came out and said, no, no, this is wrong. Kehoe is wrong. It's only three people who saw the object, and and uh, we have all these explanations. The weather was bad. It was misting, and uh, it was ball lightning type thing. Look at the weather reports. You find out, interesting, one of the weather reports from that area came from Roswell saying, no, it's clear. <laughs> There's uh, the, the uh, bad weather, the, the thunderstorms, the possible thunderstorms had passed through the area you know, 10 hours earlier. So that was not a factor in this. So you have the Air Force kind of making stuff up. Kehoe's talking about nine witnesses. And I said, I found witnesses, 13 separate locations. And according to the sheriff, he'd gotten, he'd gotten dozens, maybe hundreds of phone calls about this thing that night that this happened. I, I would say, he, he says, I think he says actually hundreds of phone calls, a couple of hundred phone calls, but I'm thinking that might be an exaggeration, but dozens sounds more like it. So we've got dozens of phone calls. We've got it. The people giving the same kind of thing. Well, it, it got close and my car stalled. Well, that's not a common uh, observation when you're close to a UFO that your car engine stalls. There's a lot, a lot of reports out there where the cars don't stall, but you've got that kind of component. You've got the people who are not connected with one another. And again, we don't have social media, so they're not, they're not jumping on the bandwagon to get their names in the newspaper and that sort of thing. It's all coming out the next day. Um, so you the FBI there as well. Was 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 that later? The FBI. I, I believe. I believe according to what the sheriff's widow said and some other information that before Barth showed up, um, the sheriff was talked to by an FBI agent, and I think he was given instructions about exactly what he was supposed to say and talk about. I, I think the sheriff might have blown off an, a sergeant from an Air Force base in Colorado Springs. Barth was came down from Colorado Springs, and I think he might have blown him off. Uh, the sheriff was out the next day, November 3rd, with the provost marshal from Reese Air Force Base, and they're looking for landing areas where the, where the craft may have landed along the highway there. But um, I think that when we, when we look at all of this together, uh, the FBI comes in and talks to the sheriff. Now Barth comes in, and I think that there may have been some communication between the sheriff and uh, the provost marshal about what to say. So he tells Barth basically what the FBI and the Air Force want him to say, which is this streak of light. But we know it's untrue because we have the newspaper reports prior to Barth showing up, and we have Don Ber- Don Berliner's, I had to figure out which Don it was here, Don Berliner's article that was published in 1975 when he talked to the sheriff and he's telling him the same thing. And one thing I should point out here is uh, I think um, Pedro Saucedo talked about it being a torpedo-shaped object and the sheriff talks about it being more oval or football-shaped and there's people talking about it being egg-shaped. And I think it's a matter of perception where how the object was situated when you saw it. If you look at a, a railroad tank straight on, it's good shaped torpedo shaped object if angle then you may get a more a from the very end then hold on we 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 we, we probably froze the screen froze for a second yes and i know about what i can recreate that if you'd like me to try you were at uh, Pedro Saucedo. Uh, yeah. And the torpedo-shaped object. Yeah, you were explaining. So you don't think it was different craft? You don't think maybe they no. possibly saw different craft? You think it was the same craft? It was the same craft. It's a matter of perspective. And if you look at a railroad tank car, 
um, you can, it looks like a torpedo shaped object, but if you're looking at it at an angle, it takes on a more of an egg shape. And if you're looking at it at the very end, you're looking at a circular object. It's not changing say, shape. It's a matter of perception of where you happen to be standing when you see the object. That's pretty interesting. So it was, it was the same object. And you think the object might have landed. There was a landing spot. There was, there was evidence. It, it was reported on the ground a number of times. Saucedo reported it on the ground. Uh, I think Ronald Martin, I think, was a guy who reported it on the ground. There's the burned area that the rancher reported to the sheriff. And the sheriff was out there and he saw it. And uh, the, the rancher and the daughter were out there. I mean, we, did a Berliner didn't get to talk to the sheriff, didn't talk to the rancher because he had passed away when he, I'm sorry, not Berliner, but Berlinson, when he was talking to the rancher's widow, the rancher had passed away, but the daughter was still alive. So he got the, um, uh, the, the, that's the, Berlinson got the testimony from an eyewitness. So yes, there were burned areas as well. And did you say at the beginning there was an occupant, Kate? There was an occupant? There was a, one? Yeah, there was a case that took place uh, at about three o'clock in the morning in Canadian, Texas, where the object was landed on the highway. The Air Force file on it only has the name of the Air Force NCO who reported. There was another guy on the other side of the object who saw it as well, but the name has been redacted from the file. And I even contacted the um, newspaper in Canadian, Texas, and they were very helpful, which is kind of weird in today's environment because mostly they just blow you off. But they thought that story was very interesting and tried to find any newspaper article about it that might have given the name of the civilian. I couldn't find it, but I do have the name of the Air Force. Uh, NCO who was involved. And so we saw the object on the ground. Now, the the description of the occupant was more human than humanoid and seemed to be wearing uh, like a baseball cap and climbed back into the object and it took off. But we do have that from Canadian Texas. There are no other sightings of occupants in the level land area at that time. Everything else is just the craft either sitting on the ground or in the sky. That's pretty interesting. And the, the, this whole this whole case is really interesting. It's so interesting. Like, I'm surprised nobody's ever heard of it before. Like, when was the first time you heard of this case? Like, that you wanted to start bringing it to, bringing it together. Like, what what got your interest? When did you start hearing? Well, I, I've I've known about the case for a long time, and it is part of the UFO literature, but it's usually sort of a subset or just a kind of a sideway mention of, of it in, in books about much longer UFO cases and, and other UFO cases or a history. It's not, de- nobody's really devoted an entire book to the thing at this point. So I was interested in it at that point. And the other thing is um, going to Roswell for that investigation, periodically I would have to get over to Lubbock. One of the witnesses for the Roswell case was a guy named Curry Holden. Uh, actually it was, um, his name was W. Curry Holden. He went by Curry because he didn't want to be confused with William Holden. But he was a, 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 an anthropologist, archaeologist, historian at um, Texas Tech in Lubbock. And since he was supposedly involved in some fashion in the, U, in the Roswell UFO crash, I had spent some time in the Texas Tech libraries looking through his diary. So I w- I'd spent time in Texas Tech. And to get to, Lub- to, get to level to Lubbock from Roswell, you drove through Level Land. And so I, yeah, this is kind of interesting. So it yeah, just, yeah. I, I just realized that this case is almost as important as the Roswell case because of the number of witnesses involved and the interaction with the environment and the landing traces and all of that stuff makes it a very important case. It, it definitely makes it an important case. I think so. I think it's, it's definitely, I mean, because it's, I think what's, what's most important, and I think we started talking about this before the show, before we started recording was evidence. You don't see a lot of evidence nowadays, you know, someone can just go on the internet and say anything and 
that, that, that people believe it. But I think what, what's so important about this is like providing evidence and, and that, that, that shows that we actually have a phenomenon. You know, I, I think we knew we did have one when we, we you know, about the Roswell case, but then, then there's like the Lonnie Zamora case too. And the, yeah, there's the Aztec crash too. And we could talk about those too, but like this just provides more, you know, actual evidence of, 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 of uh, things that we can, that are actually tangible when it comes to UFO uh, reality, right? Well, it's an interesting thing. You see, you, you mentioned uh, Roswell, you mentioned Socorro, and we have Leveland. And I've done three books. Uh, well, I've done more than three books, but I've done the latest coming out is called Understanding Roswell. Uh, we have the Leveland book, and I did a book called Encounters in the Desert, which is about the Socorro setting. I think of that as my c- c- uh, city's trilogy. Um, but uh, this case fits into that because of the all the elements involved in the number of witnesses. With the Lonnie Zamora case, for the longest time, it was said, well, it was only single witness. It was just Lonnie Zamora. And I was talking to Ben Moss, who had been working with Ray Stanford and um, um, uh, uh, Tony Angiola about the Socorro case. And I uh, remember them on my radio program podcast talking to them. And they said, well, there were three witnesses that heard the object before Lonnie Zamora saw it. And they, they called into the police station. And I said, well, you looked at the police uh, um, log. And I asked them like three times and I never got an answer. And I thought, well, I'm going to look up the uh, Socorro case in the Project Blue Book files and see what it says. And there was a report in there written the night of the Zamora sighting on April 24th, 1964, by Captain Richard Holder, who worked at White Sands Missile Range. But his duty station was... Uh, closer to Socorro than it was to Holloman Air Force Base so or White Sands. So he lived in Socorro. He and an FBI agent, Ar- Arthur Burns, interviewed Samora that very night, the night that, that he had seen him. Holder sends a report, a short report to the Pentagon. And in it, he mentions three people had called the police about hearing the object. I am, again, astonished that nobody bothered to follow up on that. Now, you've got you're in Socorro, you know the flight path of the object, and Socorro isn't that big. Why aren't you all on the, out on the flight path knocking on doors to find out who those witnesses are and what they may have seen? But nobody bothered to do that. Uh, Ray Stanford talked to a couple of women a couple of days later in a restaurant. He was there with um, a radio reporter and uh, was introduced to the women as having heard or seen part of this object. He didn't, I guess he wrote down the, the, the names, but he didn't bother to follow up on the investigation. And I'm just astonished at that. You know, I remember working with, coincidentally, Heineck on a case in Minnesota and something had landed on a um, football field. And I went uh, around the houses and was knocking on doors to see if anybody had seen anything, get the names of additional witnesses that day to, that could be interviewed. So I, I'm just kind of astonished that nobody bothered to do that in the Socorro case. At least in the in the Leveland case, we had a list of witnesses in the newspapers and other documentation that we could use to find and talk to people. And we had a lot of statements made by people, official statements. Uh, we know that Lonnie, uh, Lonnie Zamora, we know that, that the sheriff's statement was coached and was not reflective of the truth, but it was all part of the cover-up. So we can we can look at all of that kind of information. But there's a lot of these really, really good cases like that. And 
everybody assumed in the 50s and 60s that the Air Force is investigating this, them with an eye to gathering data and learning what's going on. And that turns out not to be the truth. The truth was they were trying to explain cases and they didn't care whether the explanations worked or not. They would just throw the mud at the wall and whatever stick was stuck was good with them. And then they, they paid $550,000 to the University of Colorado for the Condon Committee report to investigate UFOs. And before an investigation was started, the Air Force wrote, here's the conclusions we'd like you to reach. There's no national security implication. There's nothing of scientific value that's been, that can be um, found by continuing the investigation. So the Air Force should stop and that the Air Force had done a good job in the investigation. Lo and behold, the Condon Committee, which is held up by the skeptics, says, here's the scientific report on UFOs, found those three things. And yet we know there was this national security implication and the Condon Committee knew about it because their investigator, investigator bumped into it in the Belt Montana sightings from April of April, March of 1967, I think it was. Belt Montana's Maelstrom Air Force Base and they had a huge missile complex. These missile silos, it would flights of 10 missiles all grouped together and they're scattered all over the countryside. So if you take out one missile um, site, you don't get them all. And one of the missile flights, all 10 missiles uh, went offline at the same time. Theoretically impossible. You, it does not happen. And so yeah. now you've got a national security implication. The content committee guy is there, the scientist is there to talk about the sightings in Belt, Montana. And he asks about the story, the rumor that the missiles had shut down. And the UFO officer working with says, I can't tell you about that. It's a matter of national security. So they knew there was a national security implication. It doesn't matter if it was a flying saucer or not that shut down the missiles. That's how we get to that point. So there's a national security implication, not to mention the sightings that were going on at the time in, in Belt, Montana. So we look at that whole thing and we can see that there's been a, an attempt by the government, by the Air Force to suppress the information about UFOs and what's going on there because there's nothing they can do about it. Yeah, and, and and would you how do you would you say this ties in today with the creation of like you know TTSA and ATIP and like what they're trying to do and or do you think that, I mean where do you think our today's disclosure fits into everything and like where do you see us headed with that or do you think it's all just like them covering up more? I I think of it as Twining 2.0. General Twining was the head of the Air Material Command in 1947, and he was. Um, the, the UFO, the flying saucer information was filtered into the Air Material Command. In fact, that's where the Roswell wreckage went. He puts out a report in September of 1947. And he says in there, you know, this, is, this phenomenon is something um, real, not illusionary or fictitious. It's something real. And he sets up a program, a priority program with a classification and all of that stuff to investigate UFOs to find out what's going on. Fast forward in today's environment. We're in the same point now, 75 years later. Oh, we're going to set up an investigation. We're going to look into this. Really? We haven't done that yet? I don't have much faith in that going any further. Look at what happened. We were told the um, Air Force, the government, the military has 180 days to investigate these Navy sightings and provide a report to Congress. And uh, what do we get after the 180 days? We get a C minus high school report, maybe a D plus report saying, well, we looked at 144 reports. Now, was, what's a report? Is it like seven guys seeing the same thing? 
and each one files a report or is it seven separate events? You know, how many different events are we talking about? And they say, well, we couldn't have explained. Uh, we only explained one of them and we'll uh, do another report here in 90 days. Well, October 25th came and passed and nobody said a word about it. And now we're looking at um, the defense, uh, defense appropriations and they're saying, well, we're setting up an office to investigate the, the UFOs. Gee whiz, I wish we'd have done that 75 years ago, you know. Uh, yeah. What is it? the CIA was involved in it? The FBI has been involved in it. They um, now the uh, all, all the intelligence agencies and all the alphabet soup they've been involved in these sorts of things. Hoover was very interested in UFOs, and we can see that from the documentation that has been uh, uh, recovered through f- uh, Freedom of Information and all that. So we know all these sorts of things, but here we are, seventy-five years later. Now we're going to start all of this all over again. And I just think it's going to be one of those deals where um, the news cycle is going to change and nobody's going to be interested in it anymore. And in today's environment, you can understand what's going on. I mean, nobody really cares about UFOs in the, right now, this minute today, because there's a lot of other stuff going on that's much more important. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, it would depend on like, if it, 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 I guess it depends on how it affects us, right? I mean, like, I think the reason why today's society doesn't care about you doesn't, well, it's shown that because we have more pressing issues facing humanity, but they're not an actual, it's not like they're coming to invade Earth. But what's weird is we have 40 years of, of, of abductions from the Professor Mack's uh, work to David Jacobs to Bud Hopkins to uh, all, all the old re, old school researchers to now people researching today that have documented abductions that were you know where people said you know Daryl Sims uh, where they said you know this this was a, a problem where people were being taken and what were your thoughts on that like on the on well, there, there's some some abduct, there's some problems with the abduction phenomenon, the way it's been reported. I will I will take credit for reporting the first case where the aliens came into the house to abduct somebody. And this was the Pat Roach abduction from um, October of 1973. I reported it in the Saga's UFO report, yeah, I think in 1976. I think it's the first time that's ever, that was ever reported. Since that time, there's been a, many, many reports of them coming into the house and, and going back beyond 1973. But I think the, that was the first time it was reported. But I also think that the Pat Roach abduction was a result of sleep paralysis. And I say that because I was there, I talked to her many times, I know what's going on. And I think this case is that case, that particular case is sleep paralysis, which is not to suggest that all the other cases are sleep paralysis. But in this case, I believe that's the solution to it. Uh, John Mack said something that was very interesting. He said that the experiencers seem to seek out the abduction researcher whose um, opinions seem to match their own, meaning that John Mack got uh, aliens with an Eastern philosophy and David Jacobs got those who are creating hybrids and um, taking over the earth and Bud Hopkins got the cold calculating scientists. And, and, and Barbara Lamb got the new age, a new age peace and love aliens, right? Yeah. And, and so the, I think, but, but I thought, you know, Mac as a psychiatrist should have been able to figure out it's really not the, the experience you're seeking out a specific researcher because it, aligns with his or her experiences it is the um, researcher asking questions that lead to that conclusion and so and you can see it uh, bud hopkins uh said something uh, once that um people say i lead the witness he says show show me in the transcripts where i lead the witness and i said 
challenge accepted and went through his one of his books and found a segment, a long segment where he actually is leading the witness into the point where he wants it to go. And, and so you have to be very careful when you're using hypnotic regression and these sorts of techniques that you don't inadvertently implant your own ideas on the subject of the investigation. And uh, I think a lot of people uh, have, have an episode of sleep paralysis or something like that, and they're convinced it's uh, an alien abduction. I think the, the, the more likely abductions are those like Travis Walton or Calvin Parker or Barney and Betty Hill. Where it's it's I, I kind to, of a target yeah. of opportunity thing, you know. Yeah, I, I I got to talk to Calvin Parker, you know, and and I I will admit that like he he he's still questioning what happened to him to this day. He has no he has no you know he doesn't he 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 remembers it, but he doesn't it doesn't it doesn't it's all, all the pieces aren't there for him, right? You know, like he doesn't you know. Well, in in nineteen nineteen seventy seventy three when it happened, I know everybody sort of fi- fixated on um, Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker was kind of by the wayside. And I think that's the way Calvin Parker wanted it. Well, I, I didn't really see much. I don't remember much about it. And I think that was a way of him avoiding the, the media or uh, the circus that would erupt around these sorts of things. But in today's environment, I mean, I've talked to him a couple of times as well. I find him to be very sincere. You can say, is he telling the truth? Yeah. As he knows it, was he abducted? I don't know, but he's telling the truth as he knows it. So he's not a liar. He's not making this stuff up. He's telling the truth as he knows it. Yeah, which is a fine distinction to make. Yeah, yeah, it's it's hard to it's hard to say like what really happened. You know, I mean there there were there's there was another witness to the Pascagoula case, like Dr. Scott. Remember we were talking about Ohio State University. Um, the wrote, Ohio State University. Yeah, she's from there. She wrote a book on the the Pascagoula. It's called a. Uh, uh, well, what's it called? I just I just interviewed her on it. It's uh, it's uh, it's, but Philip Mann will put it out too. It's 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 called Beyond Pascagoula. It's uh, some other stuff that happened, like the loud booms that were happening at that time. Did you hear about that? The the real well, one. In uh, talking to Philip Mantle and talking to Calvin Parker, you know, it, they're talking about finding new witnesses in today's environment. I'm a little skeptical. <clears throat> excuse me, I'm a little skeptical about that because it's so long ago. And why wouldn't these people come out earlier? And of course, the answer is probably they didn't want to face the ridicule that would be heaped upon them for, 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 for telling their stories, but they're finding additional witnesses. As we found with, with uh, the Socorro case, the additional witnesses, that we find with the Leveland case, additional witnesses, that we found, well, Roswell, we're not finding many additional firsthand witnesses because it was 1947, and those people would be very, very old now if they were still alive. We've lost so many of those witnesses, but that case is uh, with with Parker talking about it. I met Charles Hickson a number of years ago, and I wasn't real impressed with him. And uh, he had, he was invited to a a um, conference in Fort Smith, Arkansas, I believe. And and I was there. And the condition was he would take a lie detector test. Well, when he got down there, he refused to take the lie detector test, which I always found very very suspicious. But then looking at the whole Pascagoula case, you know, uh, they're sitting in a um, police interrogation room, unaware that there's recording equipment, recording their private conversations, you might say, between Parker and uh, Hickson. 
so they can go back and listen to these tapes. And there's no indication there that they're doing any kind of hoax. It's not like Hickson trying to coach Parker into what to say or vice versa. They're, they're, uh, confused by what what has just happened to them so that you know that's a powerful bit of evidence for the reality of the case yeah and and then my last question for you is you have a new book out called uh, called understanding roswell because um and and i know you talked in another interview i listened to another podcast you did getting getting ready for this you talked about that like mj12 wasn't real or something like that or like there's a couple some some facts that like you came out with in this understanding roswell that i think people need to understand like you know like was that right that there was no mj or something about mj12 so can you talk about some of the stuff you brought forward in this understanding roswell book one of the things, and I, I, I hesitated to do it because, you know, people read the books. Most people who buy these books want to get the, the really incredible stories, and they don't want to learn that something they thought was real it turns out not to be real, like MJ-12. I think MJ-12, I think there's a very good history on, on MJ-12 and how it was created and who it created it and what the purpose was for it. And the other thing that we find out is... Um, there's what's the code name for MJ12? You see the documents. It says Majestic. It says Majestic 12. It says MJ12. Well, if you've got code names to the documents, you're not going to have a whole series of different code names like that. And it turns out there was a top secret project called Majestic in 1952 when this supposedly took place, but it had nothing to do with UFOs. It had to do with logistics in case the Soviet Union uh, started a war in Eastern Europe. And so it was how the logistics would be supplied into the area, how you would move the troops and the equipment into the area to encounter the Soviet uh, attack. So, uh, you know, you, you, you have a clearance for Majestic and they hand you a bunch of UFO stuff or vice versa. So you, you've compromised the program by using a similar code name. So there's a book that they use to select code names. So you don't duplicate code names, but there's a lot more to it than just that bit of real taxes. First, he said it was in 1948. And then he said it was in 1950. And then it was 1954. And he was flying an F-94, which didn't exist in 1948. The story that was originally printed about Willingham was in Skylook, which is MUFON's original publication that evolved into the MUFON journal. And I found the original article in the March 1968 issue of it. And the story he tells there is significantly different than the story he told later on. He claims, Colonel, you can look at pictures of him in an Air Force uniform, supposedly. And people are saying, well, he's been inventing this story back then. Well, how come he's uh, you have a picture of him in the 1960s in an Air Force uniform. And I said, look at it. It's a Civil Air Patrol uniform. It's not the same thing. Um, so we, we caught him in any number of lies. But the point of the Aldale Real Craze, it's, well, if, 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 if the Dale Real case wasn't invented by Willingham until 1968, uh, how can it be in the Eisenhower? It was created after Willingham began telling the story. So you have to look at all of those sorts of things. And there's other aspects. I look at Project Mogul as an explanation, another great hoaxer. And I look at the Roswell slides and the alien autopsy and about that. But I've also found some other things that are very, very interesting. For example, 
we have, you know, because they had all the little documentation, Phyllis McGuire was the daughter of the sheriff, George Wilcox. Now, there's a good name for a sheriff, George Wilcox, not Weir Clem, but um, <laughs> Sheriff Wilcox. His daughter was in, the, the family lived above the jail in 1947, and they were having their dinner. And when Mac Brazel came in to talk to the sheriff about what he had found, he brought debris with him. So the question becomes, if Sheridan Cavett, who was a counterintelligence officer, who said that the first when he saw the debris in the debris field up near the on the Brazel Ranch, recognized it as a balloon immediately, why didn't he recognize the debris that Mac Brazel brought into the sheriff's office? You know, that's the same stuff we look at. It's, it's a weather balloon. Leave us alone. You know, we're going to go back to the base now and catch our late supper. But no, they go out. They go out to look at it. So. Um, that's one of the things that, that I don't think anybody's really talked about. And the other thing I came up with today, <laughs> which unfortunately is not in the book, and I'm going to know what I'm going to do about this, but the uh, Project um, Mogul arrays launched in New Mexico apparently didn't have any Raywin targets on them. And that's what we see in General Ramey's office when they explain away the Roswell debris as a weather balloon and a Raywin target. The, the flights being launched in New Mexico didn't have the Raywin targets on them. So how could there be a Raywin target on the Brazil Ranch if the Mogul rays didn't use them? And it's amazing. It's amazing. It's I'm trying to understand a little bit better. Like, what do you mean by the 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 the, the Mogul array? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. What is that? The explanation the Air Force trotted out in 1995 is it wasn't a weather balloon. It was really just a weather balloon. Mogul was a project designed to put a microphone into the acoustical layer in the atmosphere so they could listen for Russian attempts, to, uh, Soviet attempts, to detonate an atomic bomb. And they were launching these balloons out of Alamogordo in uh, June and July of 1947. The Air Force said the balloon launched on June 4th, 1947. It's not a balloon. It's an array of balloons. It's, it's, a, it's an array of 600 feet long. Well, in New Mexico, they were 400 feet long, but a whole bunch of balloons and Raywind targets and these microphones and all this, this stuff, a big array. And it's, that's what supposedly fell on the Brazil Ranch. And because it was multiple balloons and multiple Raywind targets, it was unfamiliar to the ranchers and unfamiliar to the Air Force officers, Army officers who were involved in this sort of thing. Oh, and I when see. you look at and when you look at the, the the pictures taken in General Ramey's office, the the debris that Jesse Marcel brought to General Ramey's office to show, and the pictures we have of. I think there's uh, seven pictures of the debris. It's clearly a Raywind target, very badly degraded, and the the uh, one balloon. So it's not a mogul array. But the point I'm making here is when Brazel came to the sheriff's office, he brought some of the stuff in to show the sheriff. And that's when Marcel and Cabot came involved. And Cabot went out to the ranch and said, well, I first saw it in the, that's in the Air Force report of the interview with Cabot. When I first saw it, I knew it was a balloon. And I'm thinking, well, why didn't you bother telling us to Jesse Marcel? Why didn't you communicate this to Colonel Blanchard at the 509th Bomb Group so we don't get the press release? And uh, why would you even go out there? Because you can see what it is. It just, if it's a weather balloon and that sort of thing, you can see it's nothing extraordinary. And yet they make this long trip out to the Corona area of New Mexico. It's a three and a half hour. It's still a three and a half hour drive out there. And uh, to this field filled with this metallic debris. And the descriptions of the debris and that sort of thing really don't fit Project Mogul. 
Yeah. So, so that, the explanation is pretty well eliminated. Now, what about other signs of the, 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 the they, like they interviewed, Art Bell interviewed Jesse Marcel's son uh, on, on a long time ago. And, uh, you know, a lot of other people have come out with evidence like Tom Carey and, uh, and, and uh, his writing partner who he used to write with. I, I know I interviewed Tom. Tom Schmidt. Don Schmidt, yeah, they came out with new, new another Don. I might another Don in this conversation. I might point out. Yeah, so I mean, with everything that said, I mean, were there ever um, bodies? Do you think there were alien bodies taken away? Can we prove that? We have testimony. The only way to actually prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt is produce the bodies or photographs of them, and we can't do that. Yeah. I think the testimony is pretty strong that there were bodies. And there was a massive effort to cover that up. In the book, I have a picture of um, a number of um, carvings made by one of the witnesses who saw the bodies, a guy named uh, uh, Thomas Gonzalez. And that was how he kind of showed people what it looked like. He would make carvings of them. And there's four or five of these car carvings in the picture of the bodies. And Gonzalez says that he was transferred off the base almost immediately after this took place. I looked at the unit history for, for um, the 509th Bomb Group in Roswell in 1947. And I, I would say, I used to say that there's no evidence that a lot of people were transferred off the base. And then I got to looking at the uh, security detachments, the MP company and the, the security force, which was uh, run by Edwin Easley. And there was a letter from Edwin Easley complaining about his trained soldiers being transferred to other bases to become the trainers for other bases who are going to become, uh, ha have the atomic weapons deployed to them. So while the numbers of men assigned to the MP company and the special service squadron remained pretty much consistent, the actual individuals were changed rapidly. So because it, and it was such a significant change that easily complained about it in the letters in the unit history. Wow. Well, we've been going about an hour. Can we tell everybody where to where they find your web, if you have a website, but other than that, where to find your books? Uh, are they all with recent ones with Philip Mantle or? or well, the books, of course, are at Amazon, amazon.com. Just type in Kevin Randall. The um, Understanding Understanding Roswell book, I just got a, a hard copy of it today from, from Philip Mantle. I don't know if the ebook is up yet or not. Um, the Leveland book, of course, is there, and you can buy a really neat little hardback. Uh, you can buy a larger scale paperback, or you can get it as an ebook. So they're all there. All the books that we've talked about there, um, are uh, the, my books are available at Amazon. The blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Kevin Randall being one word. And those of you who are interested in my Vietnam experiences, it's www.vietnamgroundzero, all one word, all lowercase, dot, uh, blogspot.com. There's a link on my regular UFO blog to, to the Vietnam blog as well. So you can, you can get there that way if, if you are so inclined but it's i call it my relatively true experiences in vietnam and the reason i say that and in, in the best examples i was convinced for years that i'd left my thanksgiving dinner in the serving line as the flight crews were scrambled so we you know we had to leave i got i've got the letters that i'd written home from vietnam in 19 well 1968 1969 and i discovered that we were uh, at our home unit base on Thanksgiving for the meal, we were in Tainan, 
And they promised to uh, give us a nice Thanksgiving meal. And then they made us pay for it. And in the letters, it was a pretty crummy meal to boot. But so it's relatively true memories because we did get scrambled periodically out of the mess hall. We did get periodically scrambled out of our quarters. Um, usually we were, during the times of the missions, we were located at another base or somewhere uh, waiting for, uh, waiting for the, the time to go to do whatever the mission happened to be. What but we did you, get scrambled out of the mess hall periodically. What were your, what would you, you were a helicopter pilot, right? So like for the fans that don't know, like what kind of missions would you do? Would you like, would you drop off and pick up and drop off uh, large amounts, amounts of troops or like, or would you do like uh, gunner gunnery missions where you would fire on people or drop bombs or um, what, what were your, what, what kind of stuff did you do? Well, helicopter pilots, we didn't drop bombs, but we did have rockets. Uh, you name a mission, I probably did it one time or another. Uh, we evacuated wounded soldiers. We took supplies into uh, soldiers on the ground. We dropped off soldiers. We extracted them from hot LZs. We put them into hot LZs. Um, yeah. Hot LZ being there's a lot of enemy fire going on, too. Um, and I, I, you, you see it in some of the Vietnam movies going into a hot LZ with the door gunners. They never do it yeah. right, but... Uh, um, we did. We did uh, practically all those sorts of. Missions. I did flyer fi a firefly mission. I did a uh, a smoky where they lay down a smoke screen around an LZ so people can get extracted. Um, we extracted uh, one of the, the first time I shot down. It was we were extracting a mic force for a special forces camp in Song Bay. So, wow, that's. Uh, yeah, I, I love hearing about Vietnam because I guess you talk, I told my dad was in Vietnam. So I, I, I love hearing about the war. It's so interesting. Like um, it was just a it was it was a crazy war. It was a crazy war, man. You know, well, as I say um, at uh, www.vietnamgroundzero.blogspot.com, those are my impressions and my experiences in Vietnam for the most part. And what we did on a daily basis and uh, other interesting aspects of uh, of being in Vietnam for well, I was there for 355 days. Yeah, our standard tour was our standard tour was a year, but uh, Nixon had been elected president, and he was uh, beginning the evacuation of American forces out of Vietnam. And so I got what we called a 10-day drop. So um, instead of having instead of leaving on the 365th day, I left on the 355th day. Well, that may, may, that could have been the difference between like who knows like right I mean like thank God you I mean you made it out in one piece and then you were able to bring all these amazing UFO stories to us I appreciate that I, I really do I, I appreciate it and I appreciate your service and and also your service on coast to coast I'm a coast to coast member so I I listen to all those like I I can't I, I work a full time job so I can't stay up late at night and listen but I listen to them the next day so I hear you on there quite often so I appreciate your service on there your service in the military everything thank you you didn't you didn't hear my blunder on uh, thursday show then <laughs> not yet no what happened oh it was i don't i just got uh, tongue-tied on uh, uh, the first part of a sentence and uh, we kind of made a joke of it uh, george george Norris says you know say that quickly 10 times so and then he asked <laughs> he asked me about the uh the, the um stuff going on in uh, the Ukraine. And so I gave him my intelligence analysis. The one thing I didn't do to him is I, I, I told my wife, I, I, I said, uh, you know, Putin is looking for a warm water port. And uh, the Odessa in the Ukraine is on the Black Sea and gives 
Putin a warm water port because I think all the rest of the ports that he has uh, freeze up in the winter. Is that is that what the, this was all about? Do you think? I, I think that might be part of it, and I think it might be part of it that Putin was afraid of uh, of Ukraine joining NATO and puts NATO right on his borders, and I can understand his concern about that. But it's, um, uh, and I think if, if well, I, I shouldn't go there. I was going to say I think if Biden had handled a little bit better, um, we could have avoided some of this. But I think Putin was just looking for an excuse to to go and and. NATO was part of the excuse, and I think looking for a warm water port is part of the excuse. I think we're going to get a negotiated peace here because uh, the Soviet Union didn't, uh, Soviet Union, the Russians didn't roll over the Ukrainians as quickly as they thought they would. Yeah, that's, that's pretty interesting. It's all interesting how it's unfolding. I just hope it doesn't unfold into something very big that, you know, like, uh, you know. I think, well, I think Putin understands that, and I think that, um, I, I, I think there's going to be, um, a negotiated settlement in some fashion here pretty soon. At least that's my hope because it's now it's, it's really sort of the entire world lining up against Putin and uh, shutting down an awful lot of the um, revenue streams that were going into the Soviet Union and that sort of thing. So yeah. that's got to harm them. And I know this, a couple of the Russian billionaires are now, up, uh, annoyed because accounts in the foreign banks are being frozen and things like that. So it's the 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 sanctions are beginning to have some effect. Hopefully, right? Yeah. I, I, you know, I, yes. I, I, yes. That, yes. That makes sense. Hopefully, yeah. Well, Kevin, again, thank you for your service. Thank you for enlightening me on that subject because I don't follow the mainstream news because there's reasons, and that's a whole different podcast. So, like, I look on people like. They look to get my news like people wrote from you. So, like, so I appreciate it. Like, um, and uh, thank you. This was an amazing podcast. And uh, I'll send you a link when it's up. Okay. Look forward to it. Thank you very much. Thanks. It was nice meeting you. Have a nice night. You too.